Hey gang, this is Trent Chattaker, chiropractor and advocate for chiropractors who locate, analyze, and facilitate the correction of vertebral subluxation for the better expression of the body's innate intelligence. Welcome to today's tick. For each week, we study a chiropractic principle, question, or chiropractor to help you acquire today's philosophy, science, and art of chiropractic. Thank you for investing your time with us as a student of chiropractic. Now let the class begin. A subluxation is the condition of a vertebra that has lost its proper juxtaposition with the one above or the one below, or both, to an extent less than a luxation, which impinges nerves and interferes with the transmission of mental impulses. That was written by R.W. Stevenson over 100 years ago, close to 100 years ago. And in today's stick, we're going to grow in our understanding on vertebral subluxation. And as you listen, make sure you share us with your friends, classmates, and colleagues, and feel free to tag us at today's tick. I'll let the class begin. In 1897, D.D. Palmer had a school, and he had students. And he taught those students chiropractic, and he taught them methods of palpation and methods of adjusting of the spine. And that school is in Davenport, Iowa. I just got back from Davenport, Iowa, and it was a great trip, and it was a great experience to see the history that still stands there in that city. And D.D. Palmer's discovery to chiropractic brought about a new objective, and that objective led him to believe that vertebrae, or bones in the spine, can be and are very often slightly displaced or misaligned incomplete in a luxation and they can interfere with the neurological function from within. And so D.D. Palmer taught his chiropractic students over a hundred years ago that when these vertebrae suffer from an incomplete luxation the neurological tissue that's surrounded by bones of the spine can have impingement or stretching to the tissue due to the new negative structure or position of the vertebrae in their subluxated position. You see, the chiropractic luxation that D.D. Palmer founded over 100 years ago is now referred to as vertebral subluxation. Chiropractic is a very distinct healthcare profession that was founded with the philosophy, science, and art to facilitate in the correction of these subluxations. And in 1927, R.W. Stevenson's chiropractic textbook brought even more clarity to D.D. Palmer's discovery on vertebral subluxation. R.W. Stevenson's definition of vertebral subluxation in his textbook was exactly that quote that I read off, and I'll go through it one more time. Subluxation is a condition of a vertebrae that has lost its proper juxtaposition with the one above or the one below, to an extent less than a luxation, which occludes an opening impinges nerves and interferes with the transmission of mental impulses. What I'd like to do today is review the Stevenson criteria to vertebral subluxation by breaking the definition down into the following elements. 
Vertebral subluxation is a condition of a vertebrae that has lost its proper juxtaposition with the one above or the one below to an extent less than a luxation would be the first part. The second part would be vertebral subluxation occludes an opening. The third part would be vertebral subluxation impinges nerves and interferes with the transmission of mental impulses. So let's dive into the first part, part one of Stevenson's subluxation criteria, which is the vertebrae has lost its proper juxtaposition with the bone above or the bo bone below to an extent less than a luxation. Now for those that aren't familiar with Latin root words, luxation means you've got yourself something completely separated. So when we talk about vertebral subluxation, vertebral subluxation is a small displacement. It's a very minute displacement. Very often can't even be seen on x-ray or any type of imaging, uh, which requires other criteria to be added to uh, discovering whether or not that position is normal or malposition or displaced. So if you break this first element to Stevenson subluxation criteria down even further, you'll see that subluxation requires the vertebrae to be in proper relationship with the bone above or bone below, but if it's displaced or misaligned, now you've got yourself an opportunity to have a subluxation. The spinal column is designed to protect and direct the neurological system and starting at the very top of the spine is your cranium or your brain. And the brain is protected by the skull and it is your body's headquarters for keeping all the cells and tissues and organs working together in a coordinated state or harmony or function or health depending upon how you want to use the terminology. At the bottom of the cranium, there is a hole where the brain extends the spine through it and down into the vertebral column. And the vertebral column is really a stack of 24 bones with uh, tightly knit together soft tissue ligaments and muscles keeping the bones articulating in proportion portion to one another with just enough movement but not too much. And so for most consumers of chiropractic and even some providers of chiropractic, this is as far as the definition of uh, subluxation they feel comfortable with or they've been taught. And it's not a bad place to start and it's not a place to throw rocks at. But when left alone without the other two elements to Stevenson's criteria of subluxation, I believe professionally it's downgraded in its severity to what the negative effects of subluxation can and do cause as misalignments that aren't moving properly and they need to be repositioned for better movement and articulation, to me, is not a complete definition of subluxation. You see, malposition or displacement is a foundational element to vertebral subluxation, but alone it's just that. It's a misalignment, and a misalignment is uh, nothing more than something that needs to be realigned. 
And I would like to discuss the second element to Stevenson's criteria to subluxation, which is an occlusion to an opening to provide a little more clarity to where I'm going on why I professionally believe that misalignment or the positioning part or criteria to subluxation is not the only criteria. You see, within the headquarters, uh, uh, within the headquarters to optimal, optimal functioning being placed on top of your spine, the communication system needs to travel down your spinal cord and back up your spinal cord in order to direct and coordinate the trillions of cells predominantly below the head. It's kind of an interesting concept that all of our communication to normal function is on top of our body, while most, if not all, of the function besides some of the uh, main organs such as your eyes, ears, and nose, and throat are up in the head, in the cranium. Most, if not all, is below the head. And so within each of those 24 bones of the spine, we've got one to three openings where the neurological system and tissue can enter and exit out of for communication to take place between our headquarters and our body. And this communication flows through the nerves and the nerves flow through the vertebrae and they flow through the vertebral column. And a mentor of mine by the name of Reggie Goldwood, I always describe this architect as a very similar picture of 24 donuts stacked on top of each other with the center of the donuts being the neurological system, kind of like the jelly in the donuts. Now this description is good for one of those three openings of the vertebral column, which would be the neural canal. And this canal is in the middle of the vertebral column and houses the spinal cord. But there's also other openings and there's also other areas where that tissue is coming in and out of. And at the top of each vertebrae and the bottom of the adjacent vertebrae are two more openings that are produced through articulation of the vertebrae being sacked on top of each other. So it'd be kind of similar to poking holes in those donuts and squeezing and seeing that jelly come out the side. These openings uh, that are adjacent to each other are referred to as intervertebral uh, foramina. And these openings protect the nerve roots that extend out from the spinal cord and innervate literally the trillions of cells and tissue and organs throughout the body. So the IVF, which is the intervertebral foramina, are where the nerve trunks come and go. And these openings within the spinal column are directly influenced by the position and integrity of the vertebrae or the bones of the spine. So if one of those vertebrae become displaced or malpositioned compared to the one above or below, now the opening that houses the nerve roots or spinal cord can and do become negatively affected by creating tension from the enlarged foramina creating a state of occlusion. Now I was just reading a very uh, well written and published chiropractic textbook on chiropractic technique and there is a statement or two in there saying that the vertebrae do not impinge neurological tissue because there is enough opening and there's enough whole space for the nerve root to have a cushion of air. So if one of those vertebrae uh, bend too far to the right or bend too far backwards, there's enough 
opening within that designed area where that nerve root comes in and out of where it wouldn't create any type of impingement. Well, D.D. Palmer, I think, was ahead of his time over 100 years ago with his research and his writings when he talked about the occlusion and the impingement doesn't necessarily have to come with a hole that is smaller. It can actually come from a hole that is too large, which is an interesting concept to soak on. And he referred to it as tension. And tension, and this is a quote that he wrote uh, over 100 years ago, and he said, tension, more or less than normal, causes an increase or decrease of vibration, which means a greater or less force of an impulse and a corresponding amount of heat. Nerves are never pinched or impinged upon in the foramina. Framina are never narrowed. We do not adjust the vertebrae, the vertebrae itself. So far as the chiropractor knows, it's never displaced, dislocated, or subluxated. Any extreme movement of the articular surfaces enlarges the foramen or framina, which cause the nerves and blood vessels to become stretched, irritated, increasing its carrying power. Nerves are never shut off by the closure of the framina. There are no dams or obstructions that restrict. Impulses are never interrupted, reducing the lunated intervertebral articulation, diminishing the displacement of the articular processes, replacing the two articular surfaces, returns the enlarged foramen to its normal size, which removes tension and irritation. And irritated nerves cause muscular contraction. The location and amount of disturbance depends upon the portion of the nervous system involved. Now that was a mouthful for me and for you, it was probably an earful. But if I looked back on that quote by D.D., what he's more or less saying is when one of the uh, positional integrity of the, of the vertebrae become lost, it, it doesn't necessarily make a bone pinch a nerve. I hear that very often in practice where I've got a pinch nerve, Doc. Can you find that pinch nerve? It's not necessarily a bone sitting on a nerve. What he said and what he proposed, and I I stand professionally behind, is it, it, the, the vertebrae actually pulls on the nerve. So, and it's usually on the opposite side. And so the occlusion isn't necessarily on the side where the rotation or the malposition is. It can be on the contralateral side where your guitar string is being strung too tight and now the frequency of tone is off and now the nerve is doing too much. And so the first two elements to Stevenson's subluxation criteria are directly related to one another if, if there is enough malposition and there is an enough occlusion to the opening. So what that means is not every malposition, not every misalignment is necessarily producing an occlusion to a neurological foramen, if that makes sense. And not every occlusion to a neurological foramen is uh, related to a position of a vertebrae. Think about that. There can be occlusion to 
a canal, such as your spinal cord canal, from a herniated disc. And I'm sure you've heard of or you've seen or you've experienced this, and I have as well. It's not a fun state of condition to go through because when the disc propels backwards, it goes into the spinal cord. And when that takes place, that produces an occlusion to that hole, which does not which does not feel good and it does not create normal function. But that is not a vertebral subluxation. It's actually a different state of condition called the herniated disc. So what R.W. Stevenson was doing for our profession in 1927 was clearly defining an objective to what chiropractors focus on correcting, which is vertebral subluxation, which is the topic of today's episode. And so subluxation, the third part to the Stevenson criteria to subluxation is it impinges neurological or mental impulses. It interferes with the transmission of mental impulses. Now in chiropractic, we have a lot of unique terms that were created in, predominantly in Davenport, Iowa with these natives of the Palmer family coming up and saying, if we're going to have a specific and unique profession that is separate and distinct from other fields, such as medicine, we need to be able to define what we're doing and what we're focused on. And one of them was mental impulse, which is, I feel like kind of the unsung hero term that not many uh, chiropractors or not many uh, advocates of chiropractic or even uh patients or clients or practice members of chiropractic talk about. And it's, to me, one of the most fascinating concepts to chiropractic. And we're not going to go too far into detail on it because we don't have enough time. I know I've touched upon it in the past episodes, but I think we need to make an episode solely on this one, which is the mental impulse. And mental impulses, in short, are electrical nerve activity with a message embedded within the uh, within the activity, within the electrical uh, chemical activity. And so it's similar to a code for the purposes of coordinated activity throughout the entire body. The neurological system transmit mental impulses similar to the Morse code relaying proper instructions for the person listening to the Morse code. And so our headquarters, which is the brain, is communicating back and forth with different parts of the body. And it's not just a on-off scenario. It's, it, it may be an on-off with another message being incorporated into that on-off scenario through the mental impulse. And so the definition Stevenson defined with mental impulse in his 1927 book is a unit a mental force for a specific tissue cell for a specific occasion a special message to a tissue cell for the present instant it differs from a universal force in that it's constructive and is for a particular moment in need for coordination while universal forces are not constructive in particular and are for all moments generally and are too general to be coordinative Wow, mind-boggling to think that our brain is communicating with our heart, lungs, and stomach and sending specific communication to those organs 
for a specific moment and a spe specific occasion. Just think about that. The transmission of these mental impulses rel rely upon the unique makeup of the actual neurological system and infrastructure that protects and directs the delicate nerve tissue. Nerve tissue is very delicate, folks. If you put a dime on a nerve, it's going to interfere with a large portion of that neurological conduction. Nerves are not meant to be stretched, pulled upon, or impinged in any way. It's designed to be protected by the hard tissue of the, the bone. And so the nerve's capability to transmit information can go as fast as 275 miles per hour, and it's due to that cable-insulated-like structure that can provide a pathway of electrochemical communication without interference along the way. And so mental impulses rely upon codes of modulation in order for information to be conveyed through this electrochemical impulse. Changes in amplitudes and frequency of electrical charge are creating different information. So similar to the Morse code, if you push the button in a certain sequence, it's going to relay a certain information. And the, post, the postulation or the theory or the hypothesis on these mental impulses and neurological communication with information embedded into it is not a new conversation for physics. If you're in your car, you're listening to the radio. If you're not listening to the satellite radio, I don't know how the satellite transmit information. I'm sure it's very similar to the radio frequency, but for this example, the radio frequency will send you different modulation and different amplitudes and different frequency, hence AM and FM, with packets of information being sent to your antenna. And that information would be either a song or a news forecast by someone on the other end. So if there's too much tension on the nerve pathway that can interfere with the communication highway, and that tension alters the mental impulse, too much tension on the nerve can create an alteration in the amplitude similar to stringing the guitar too tight and altering the musical vibration from the chords. Nerves transmit through vibrations, and if the misalignment or the malposition or displacement along with an occlusion of the hole or in Latin neuroforamina creates too much tension on the neurological tissue, this can create an alteration in the message being sent by the mental impulse. Guess what you have now when those three criteria are met? You have vertebral subluxation. How these chiropractors came up with this amount of information packed into one definition is mind-boggling to me, but I am here to spread the message and communicate the objective at hand. And so your body is currently sending and receiving messages throughout the body through your neurological system for the purpose of uniting the body's inherent recuperative power, or in chiropractic referred to as innate intelligence, with the cells, tissues, and organs that make up the body being interference-free to these mental impulses gives your body or your inherent recuperative powers a higher chance of normal function. It's as simple as that. You're removing one negative to create room for more positive. Every cell in your body requires mental impulses at every moment, which means 
There are trillions of mental impulses for every moment of your body to maintain proper function throughout the body. Trillions of impulses per moment requires efficiency, and efficiency requires no interference at that neurological or vertebral level. And so the purpose of today's episode was to define subluxation. There's your complete definition, and the challenge would be to follow up on the next episode to learn more about subluxation as we dive deeper into this topic so that you can gain a greater sense of value and care with your chiropractor. Thanks for joining us. I really had fun on this episode and I look forward to catching you on the next one. Thanks. Bye. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode as I did. Let me know what you enjoyed about it by tagging us at Today's Tick on social media. And if this is your first episode, please subscribe. Leave us a review. Reviews help us spread the message about chiropractic and the location, analysis, and correction of vertebral subluxation. Share this episode with your friends, classmates, and colleagues. Be a champion and send them this episode. As BJ Palmer said, you never know how far reaching something you think, say, or do today will affect the lives of millions tomorrow. As always, we like to end our episodes with the definition of chiropractic. Chiropractic is a healthcare discipline that recognizes the innate recuperative power of the body to heal itself through identifying and caring for vertebral subluxations due to the relationship between structure and function as coordinated by the neurological system and how that relationship affects the preservation and restoration of well-being. This information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, mitigate, or prescribe the use of any technique as a form of treatment for any physical conditions, symptoms, or diseases. Directly consult with a qualified healthcare professional for any chiropractic or medical advice. In addition to the benefits of chiropractic care, one should also be aware of the existence of some risk. Risks associated with some chiropractic care may include soreness, musculoskeletal sprain, strain, and fracture. In addition, there have been reported cases of stroke associated with chiropractic care. Research and scientific evidence do not establish a cause and effect relationship between chiropractic care and the occurrence of stroke. Rather, studies indicate that people may be consulting chiropractors when they are in the early states of a stroke. In essence, there is a stroke already in process. However, you are being informed of this reported risk.